Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, for you and for the forgiveness of your sins. God fills us with his love, and it overflows in an abundant way as the people of God that he has called us to be. From Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska, this is Proclaiming the One with Pastors Clint Poppy and Adam Moline. Welcome once again to Proclaiming the One, Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, and as we record this, Vicar Golden is on vacation. Uh, I think today as we record this, he's probably getting ready to end his vacation and drive back from Colorado. Uh, he is so clever. Yeah. Vicar Golden, Pastor Moline, tell our listeners, where did Vicar Golden vacation? Well, uh, just the other day, I saw that Vicar Golden had lunch at the Golden Cafe in Golden, Colorado. And uh, the way I understand it is he tried to get a free lunch with that name uh, eating at that restaurant, but I don't think it worked. Yeah, well, um, I'm I'm just going to say that that'll tell you everything you need to know about the wit and cleverness of our vicar. But uh, uh, yeah, it, it was it was kind of cute that uh, he's never been this close to Golden, Colorado before. So we can't wait to get back, for him to get back to hear all the Golden stories. Today we're going to take a look at the readings for Quinquagesima. Uh, again, these uh, Jesima Sundays are unique to the one-year series. We have a three-week time of pre-Lent. And these, these readings sometimes get almost overlooked or forgotten because... This Sunday, Quinquagesima, is three or four days before the celebration of Ash Wednesday. And Ash Wednesday generally overshadows Quinquagesima. But we have some great readings here and a great opportunity to prepare one more time before we head into our Lenten journey. Pastor, the gospel reading for Quinquagesima is Luke 18 31 to 43. Would you share those words, please? Taking the twelve, Jesus said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what he said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside, begging, and hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. All right, we have an amazing text here, and uh, it, it's almost kind of a two-part text. We have the teaching of Jesus, and then we have the miracle of Jesus, and yet 
it's cra- uh, put together beautifully, uh, not only under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through Luke the Apostle, uh, Luke the Evangelist, but uh, it's put together beautifully at this particular point in time in our church here. As we get ready to enter into our Lenten journey beginning on Ash Wednesday. And so here we have these two units that are put together and the teaching is given and the disciples don't get it. And then we have almost an object lesson with the miracle and the healing. Uh, The only way you're going to get it is if Jesus opens your eyes. And uh, so it's marvelous, marvelously put together and constructed that way. Uh, taking the 12, uh, Jesus said to them, we're going up to Jerusalem. Everything written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Pastor, there is a distinctive uh, shift or break near the end of chapter 9 in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, and from that point on, we see Luke, uh, Jesus in Luke is on a journey. He's on a mission. What can you tell us about that? On a mission, that's funny. Um, no, he, He's on a mission from God. When I was in uh, college at an unnamed university, the uh, theme verse for the year was on a mission, and they had the, uh, the Bible passage it's quoted from underneath it, and if you went and looked it up, it was, we're on a mission to destroy the Amalekites. And so it just cracks me up when we said it that way. Uh, so leave it leave it to Concordia University in Seward, huh? I, I didn't say where the place was. I just, it cracks me up. So um, <laughs> now I forgot the question. Yes, Jesus is on a mission. Uh, he is um, on his way to the cross. He is telling the disciples clearly, and this is the third time that Jesus tells them where he's going. And this is perhaps the most pronounced of them. Christ is on his way directly to go to the cross, to bleed, to suffer for the forgiveness of sins, to die, and to rise again on the third day. And he keeps telling the apostles this, and they just don't seem to get it. And I think there's a certain amount of irony as well with the rest of our scripture lesson uh, in the way that Jesus begins to say it to him. He says, see, or uh, behold, uh, and the idea uh, in the Greek, it is the verb to see, uh, so behold with your eyes uh, what he's telling them. And then you have the irony of the blind man getting it and the disciples don't later so we we have jesus intentionally on a journey to jerusalem correct jesus knows what his mission is he is determined to fulfill this mission this was not something that happened upon him accidentally or he bumbled haphazardly into getting arrested and going to the cross. There, there are so many people who attack Christ, who attack the Bible, who attack Christianity, who want to attack Good Friday and Easter. And they do it sometimes by saying Jesus was an unwitting, unwilling participant. Is there anything in Scripture, Pastor, that would give any kind of credence to the fact that Jesus didn't know what was going on and was somehow duped into the crucifixion? 
Uh, no, I mean, like we just said, this is the third time that he's said very clearly to the disciples that uh, the Son of Man must suffer and die on the cross. We even uh, have the night he's betrayed after the Lord's Supper is instituted. He goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and he prays, knowing what's going to happen. And, and the, maybe this is where they read in too much to what the Scripture says. He prays, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. Um, but the important part is, is that he says, but not my will be done, but your will, Father. In other words, uh, I know this is going to happen, and I know this is the way sin will be forgiven, and so let it be done to me according to your word, really, I guess is a way to say it. And it's not to say that um, Jesus isn't God or that he doesn't understand or he doesn't want this. I mean, of course he doesn't want this in his human nature, but he he understands it, he knows it's coming, and he's teaching us by the things that he does. And he's trying to get us to understand this is the only way that sin can be forgiven, that this is necessary to have happen. And, and so that's what we need to take from all these places. A little variation or a little twist on that uh, attacking of Christ would be to say, well, Jesus did this on, pers- on purpose simply to make a name for himself. He wanted the headlines. He wanted to draw attention to himself uh, in the same way that a uh, mass murderer or a sniper at a school or uh, Jim Koresh or something like this wanted uh, wanted their, their time in the spotlight. How is it clear from Scripture that this was not the desire and the intent of Jesus? Well, um It's clear in Scripture that Christ isn't just here to bring attention to himself for the sake of the attention. It's always bringing attention to himself, I guess you would say, for the sake of us so that we might understand what's going on. He's always teaching. Uh, We have other places in Scripture where Christ says, tell no one what I've done to you until the time of the resurrection. And so you can kind of imagine a lot of people know what's going on and uh, kind of have a guess of who he is, and it's not until after he rises from the dead that these stories start to come out. Well, Jesus did this for me, Jesus did that for me, and get recorded for us then in the Holy Scriptures. Um, I think the other thing you you notice is that the Jews made sure the things that happened to him weren't necessarily done in the spotlight or the limelight. They arrest him in the middle of the night, they do a secret trial with no uh, improper witnesses and things like that overnight. They get him before the governor first thing in the morning so that he is already on the cross before anybody really realizes what's taken place and what's happened. Uh, And so all these things point together to tell us that Jesus isn't doing this for the sake of drawing attention to himself. They, uh, verse 34 of Luke 18, they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them. They did not grasp what he said. Three times we are told, um, I guess in a sense, the disciples are doofuses. They can't figure this out. Um, what's going on here, Pastor? Well, I wouldn't say that they're doofuses. I think they are people just like us, sinful people, and the whole concept of um, God dying on the cross to forgive sins is kind of a foreign idea, at least at this time, and even um, really it's kind of an offensive idea today. We think if there's a God that he's an all-powerful, self-serving sort of person, not a person who sacrifices himself to take care of his creation. And so I think 
They hear Jesus saying these things, and even this one is pretty clear, flogging, delivered over to the Gentiles, mocked, shamefully treated, uh, and on the third day will rise. This is very, very clear, and yet they're probably just smiling and nodding like, yeah, right, whatever, Jesus, we know who you are, and we know this isn't the way things work. You're going to ride in here in power and glory, sit on the throne, and uh, we're going to be your subjects uh, by your your omnipotent uh, hand bringing these things about in a show of force. And so it's just uh, not understanding how Christ is going to purchase and win the whole world from sin, death, and the power of the devil. We're pretty quick to uh, to mock or laugh at the disciples here, and we need to just remember our catechism. I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to him. We cannot do this because of our brain, our emotions, our great intellect. Uh, the disciples are with Jesus. They're being taught by Jesus. And until this is revealed to them by the Holy Spirit, they are not going to connect all the dots. And in the second half of our gospel text, we see Jesus teaching how all the dots get connected. We need to take a short break. This is Proclaiming the One. We're looking at the readings for Quinquagesima. When we come back, we'll continue our look at Luke 18, 31 to 43. Don't change that dial. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. My song is Love Unknown, a hymn that is a relatively new hymn, but a beautiful, beautiful hymn that recounts the passion of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What a what a marvelous way to set the stage for us as we look at the readings for Quinquagesima Sunday here on Proclaiming the One. We're looking at the gospel reading, Luke 18, 31 to 43. And in the first half of this reading, we have Jesus predicting his death. We have Jesus explaining as clear as it can possibly be that uh, he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him, and the third day he will rise." Pastor, in our previous segment, we, we talked about how, how clear Jesus is with the prediction of his death and his resurrection. There's one thing that kind of sticks out in my mind here. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles. Um, boy, it, it sure seems that the Jewish authorities had a major, major role in what's about to happen to Jesus. Uh, is, is, there, is there some little unique thing that we're supposed to be picking up on here? Well, uh, there is, actually. Um, the reality of the ancient Jewish world at this particular time was that the Jewish authorities did not have the authority to put anyone to death. All death 
cases, all capital punishment cases, had to go through the Roman governor or ruler at that time of that region. Um, the, the local government, the, the Jewish people who were being subjugated, did not have the authority to put anyone to death. We even mentioned that, I think, in the uh, gospel accounts of Christ's death. And so, to put him to death, to get rid of him for good, they have to come up with some sort of fake charges and trumped up uh, uh, trickle-down charges or whatever to get him put to death. And so they do that. They turn him over to Pontius Pilate. We even confess that then in the Creed. Uh, And it even makes for some interesting things later on, like in the book of Acts, where Stephen is stoned during an interregnum uh, where the... um, the governor is being recalled and on his way back to Rome, and there is no local uh, Roman official that can do the death penalty. And so it's interesting to consider all that historically speaking. Okay, so it's not only the Gentiles, it's not only the Jews, it's really kind of a joint effort, and uh, the Jews want him put to death, but only the Gentiles have the authority to do so. So they have to work, uh, strange bedfellows, so to speak, they have to work in concert. And we have that weird spot in the Gospels as well where it says uh, that uh, the two become friends on that day as a result as well, which is interesting in that way. So we, uh, we move on, and early in the text it says Jesus and the twelve are going up to Jerusalem. And then in verse 35, it says, as he drew near to Jericho. Pastor, you're the geographical guy. Uh, Jericho and Jerusalem, are they close? Uh, is, he, is he moving in the wrong direction, the right direction? Help us here. No, he is headed in the right direction, and Jericho and Jerusalem are fairly close as the bird flies. Uh, the reality is is um, the unique geography of the Holy Land uh, makes this necessary. You have uh, the west coast of Israel that's on the Mediterranean Sea that is at sea level. And then on the east coast, if you will, you have the Jordan River, the Dead Sea, and the Sea of Galilee, which are far below uh, sea level. And then in between, you have mountain ranges that are are, uh, several thousand feet above sea level, and it's only you know 40, 50 miles across. And so the the reality, geographically speaking, is to get from Galilee to Jerusalem, the flattest, easiest way to walk is to walk downhill to the Jordan Valley, to walk down the Jordan Valley, and that's where Jericho is, uh, and then to walk up the hill into Jerusalem. And in fact, this is what Christ does, because we see he also stops off at Bethany uh, on the way, which would be be on the road between Jerusalem and Jericho, and so everything geographically makes perfect sense here. Okay, uh, thank you. And uh, Pastor Moline will be leading a uh, tour to the Holy Land coming up in when? When is that tour, Pastor? Well, it's still getting the final bits signed on the line. So when we get that figured away, 100% we'll have it advertised. Okay, so if you have any questions or you're interested, let Pastor Moline know. Okay, so as he drew near to Jericho, a blind man sitting by the roadside is begging. He hears the crowd go by and he inquires what's going on. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, excuse me, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. What can you tell us, Pastor, about the cry that the blind man makes as Jesus walks by? 
Well, I think it is a good confession of faith here. Uh, This blind man uh, knows his Bible well, and he understands that Christ is the uh, descendant of King David and therefore the rightful person to sit on the throne. And so his confession of faith is, Jesus, son of David, uh, in other words, King have mercy on me, uh, which is the very thing Christ is always eager to do, is to have mercy. And so this tells us he understands that this isn't just some guy from Nazareth. It is the Messiah, the uh, anointed one who should be the king, rightfully sitting on the throne of David forever, just as was prophesied in the Old Testament. This account kind of reminds me of when uh, people were bringing little G- little children to Jesus to have him touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. Um, here, the disciples, those who were in front, rebuked him, telling him to shut up, be silent. But he cried out all the more. Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Kind of an odd question, isn't it? The guy's blind. Um, why does Jesus make this blind man articulate what's the problem? Well, it is a good diagnostic question, isn't it? Not that Jesus doesn't know as God, he knows all things, but he's allowing this man to confess his faith before all these other people so that they might understand who Jesus is just as he does, and that they might ask Christ for the right things just as this man is, especially when we consider what we just learned. Where's Jesus headed? He's going to Jerusalem. He's going to be flogged. He's going to be turned over to the Gentiles. He's going to be killed and buried and raised again on the third day. What's the point of all that? What does that accomplish? Why would he do this? Well, that's the way that God shows his mercy to us, is in Christ crucified and risen. And so um, this blind man understands that Jesus is the one who gives mercy. The rest of these people, as we just read a minute ago, it's hidden from them. They don't understand. They can't see it. And so this blind man in that way is telling us, teaching us who Christ is and what he's going to do so that when he goes to the cross, we say, look, that's how I receive mercy from God. We have uh, the, the exchange goes on. Uh, the blind man says, uh, Lord, uh, I want to see my I want to see. Let me recover my sight. Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and following him, glorifying God. Um, Jesus says, recover your sight. Boom. He says it and it's done. No no surgery, no six weeks of therapy, no uh, seeing eye dog, nothing like that. It's immediately his sight is restored. He says, your faith has made you well. I know a lot of Christians stumble at statements like this. A lot of Lutheran Christians stumble at statements like this, and they turn it back on themselves. You know, if only I had more faith, then my cancer would leave my body. If only I had more faith, my children would uh, go start going to church. If only I had more faith, I would uh, be more successful in my job. Pastor, when Jesus says to this formerly blind man, your faith has made you well, what is Jesus saying and how can we apply that to our lives today? 
Well, uh, as Lutherans, this isn't a huge thing for us because we know faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Faith is a gift that God gives. It's not an action that we accomplish. And Christ understands that and is teaching us this with these sorts of words. We have it in the Old Testament as well. It's not a new idea from the New Testament. We have Abraham who believed in God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And how did he believe? Well, God gave Abraham his word. And that's the reality here as well. This man has heard about Jesus and understands who he is. And by hearing, he's now seeking Jesus in faith. And that faith, when he finds Christ, and I don't mean find him like the evangelicals speak today, but rather, in this case, he literally sees him there by Jericho. Um, He cries out for mercy, and he receives that exactly from our Lord. And the faith that drove him to Christ is the thing that has then saved him. And uh, uh, I know the words in the English translation have made you well or healed you. Uh, In the Greek, the word is sozo, uh, and it's in the perfect tense, has saved with present abiding results. So the action happened in the past, and now it's still there. He is saved, is maybe the way that we would say it today, because of his faith in Jesus Christ. Is there any such thing as a generic faith? A faith that is like a quality inside of me that has no particular object. It is just like this uh, nebulous thing that we describe as faith. I'd say that there is that faith, but it's not Christian faith and it's not saving faith. And usually when we have that nebulous thing, it becomes actually the idol that we worship uh, rather than letting God be God for us. And so uh, I would always be really nervous and cautious about a nebulous within us faith. So true faith, Christian faith, saving faith has an object. Is that a fair way to say it, Pastor? Yes, and and even to clarify a bit more, that object is always the triune God and Jesus Christ, that second person of that triune God who bleeds, dies, and rises again for the forgiveness of our sin. What would you say to the person who uh, is undergoing some trial, tribulation, sickness, grief, heartache, whatever, and they think to themselves, if only I had a greater faith, this problem wouldn't be happening. How would you respond, Pastor? Well, uh, the statement, I wish I had greater faith, or even, you know, I've had the times where you say, how do I make myself believe? Uh, Those are always approaching it from the wrong way. Uh, As Dr. Masaki at the seminary would say, it's the wrong question. Um, Because asking and looking at our faith is looking inward. Instead, we ought to look to Jesus and to his promises and his word and what he says. Uh, And when we do that and we hear that he promises to be with us always to the end of the age, when he promises to prepare a place for us, when he forgives us all of our sins, uh, all these things that he tells us, that's where our faith is given and that's where we look. Sin causes us to be curved in on ourselves. And by the grace of God and by the power of his word, rather than being turned in our, on ourselves, he opens our eyes so that we can see him and his word and his promises. And there and there alone is life and salvation. Yeah, uh, that's exactly the truth. So don't ask yourself uh, if you have done enough or if you believe enough, uh, rather trust that uh, faith as a mustard seed, a teeny tiny seed is enough and that Christ will give it to you as he has promised through his word and through the sacraments. 
This is Proclaiming the One. We're looking at the readings for Quinquagesima. We need to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to look at our Old Testament reading from Isaiah 35, 3-7. Don't change that dial. We'll be right back. Listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One, Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline. Each week we take a look at the upcoming readings for our Sunday in the church year. Today we're looking at the readings for Quinquagesima, the last of our three pre-Lent Sundays. We have Ash Wednesday coming up this year here at Good Shepherd, and that is February 26th. 2020. We will worship at 4 p.m. and 6.30 p.m. Also, we will have a fellowship meal in between. If you'd like to participate in the imposition of ashes, please come just a few minutes early, and we pray that God would richly bless us as we begin our journey to the cross and empty tomb. The Old Testament reading for Quinquagesima is from one of my favorite chapters in Isaiah, Isaiah 35, Verses 3 through 7. Pastor, you want to read those words, please? Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. Okay, we have a a beautiful, beautiful picture of... The second coming of Christ, the new creation, the new heavens, and the new earth. We have uh, a, a beautiful picture of the remnant returning, the restoration, God at work restoring his people who have, uh, who have been, been through a lot and suffered a lot. And yet this particular text is teaching us uh, a whole lot more than that as well. Uh, it's pretty easy to see why this Old Testament reading was chosen to pair with the miracle of the blind man from Jericho receiving sight because it says right here in verse 5, the eyes of the blind shall be opened. And so we have, we have a very, very close connection here. 
when uh, when we look at the beginning here, Pastor, strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. Who is doing the talking, and who is doing the strengthening and the shoring up of the feeble knees? How how are we to understand this this prayer or this dialogue that's going on? Well, I think the ones who are nervous and afraid and anxious and even the shaking hands and knees, uh, that is uh, that is a, a sign of fear. I'm trying to remember what movie it is where the guy is holding the uh, the glass or whatever and he's shaking so much that it's rattling against. Uh, um, I can't remember what movie it is. Anyways, it's fear. They're afraid, and so who's the one who's strengthening them? That's God. Who's the one who's making firm the feeble knees? That's God. Who's the one who's saying uh, to those who have an anxious heart, be strong and fear not? That's God as well. God is the one who gives. God is the one who cares. God is the God of gospel, good news, care, mercy, love. And so we see that all taking place here. And yes, it, it does connect to our gospel lesson through uh, the, the idea that the blind shall see, the eyes of the blind shall be opened. And what I love about it is, when does that happen? When he's on his way to bleed and die for the forgiveness of sins. That's why this is happening. That's how he's going to strengthen weak hands and make feeble knees strong uh, and calm those with anxious hearts. He's going to bleed and die to forgive all sins, to conquer death in the grave, and grant eternal life to the people who believe in him. The uh, end of verse 4 of Isaiah 35, and the beginning of verse... Um, no, it's the end of verse 4. It says, Behold... Your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Is that two different things, Pastor? That he will come with vengeance and recompense and then save us? Are the two connected? Is it two sides to the same coin? How are we to understand how God will do this, how God will save us, how God will make us strong and courageous? Well, they all are related. Uh, they all are talking about the same event, the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, vengeance, uh, God brings his vengeance against sin to the cross and puts it all upon Christ so that... Um, it's, it's kind of like, you know, when you did something wrong with your siblings when you were a kid and you all decided which one of you is going to take the rap when mom and dad get home. And that one guy then takes the punishment for everybody so the other ones get off. Um, that's what Christ does for us. So the vengeance of God goes on Christ. Uh, recompense is not really a word that we use a lot in our English language, and yet I think the meaning of what it means is helpful. It says uh, the definition of recompense is to make amends to someone for loss or harm suffered, to compensate, uh, recompense, recompensate maybe is a way to think about it. And how does that happen? In the cross of Jesus Christ. Uh, the uh, compensation of God, the place where you've done wrong, the place where you owed God, the place where your debt was, Jesus pays for. He 
uh, pours out his blood in your place. He takes your place. He compensates God for your sin by his suffering and death. And so that also then is connected to the cross of Christ. He will come and save you. Uh, I think that one's probably the one's most clear to see how we are saved in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So all these things, again, are pointing us to the cross of Jesus Christ. Okay, very well said. Um, when we uh, when we get into this, uh, how how are you to know that this is happening? And we have then, the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame will leap like a deer, the tongue of the mute sing for joy. When uh, the disciples of John the Baptist came to Jesus and uh, are you the one who was to come or should we wait for someone else? Jesus says, uh, well, what do you see? You know, the blind have their sight, the lame walk, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. Jesus himself points to these things as indicators that he is the Christ, the Savior, the Messiah. That, I think, is is without debate and without doubt. Is that is that correct, Pastor? No, that's exactly correct. And Jesus sees himself as the fulfillment of these words from Isaiah, and it's almost too bad that we don't have uh, the words that come after this from Isaiah in there as well, where it talks about the highway that's there that shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. And what we're saying here at the, it leads to this, the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and singing or sighing shall flee away. Christ is doing all this for us. It's the great reversal. This is what Isaiah sees and is teaching us about. Um, and all these signs are there that our salvation has been won. We are now on the way of holiness, if you will. And I think that's perhaps why then in the book of Acts, the Christians call themselves the way. This is a reference back here to Isaiah. They see these things having been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The first 10 verses of Isaiah 35 are just pure gold. They really are. Pastor, in uh, in that first half of verse 6, Isaiah 35 verse 6, it's easy to connect this to the miracles of Jesus, the miracles that point to him as the fulfillment of everything. But then in the second half of verse 6 and in verse 7, um, now something doesn't seem to fit. Waters break forth in the wilderness, streams in the desert, burning sand shall become a pool, thirsty ground springs of water, haunt of jackals lie down, become reeds and rushes. Um, this seems more like end of the world kind of stuff. Uh, things that we would talk about in the first couple of weeks of Advent. And so... How can we have these miracles that point to Jesus in the same sentence and in the same context as things that point to the end of the world or the second coming of Christ? Well, uh, in one regard, I guess the way to say it would be this. The world is coming to an end. We are in the last days, and the climax of what happened in this world happened in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so now we're kind of in the winding down period, and the end is near, uh, to uh, sound like those guys on the corners of the streets, right? Uh, we are in the last days, and so these things are the signs that the end of the world is coming and that the recreation is soon to take place. And I think we can 
you know, we're Lutherans, and so we always are looking for baptism. I think this is a place where we can do this. Um, we are washed in water, and uh, the the world, the wilderness of the world, does become a nice place for us to be in the washing of rebirth and renewal, as as it says in Titus, um, in which our sins are taken away from us and we are reborn into eternal life with God. Uh, and, and so this is already happening even now for us in the waters of baptism. As uh, Pastor Morundi always used to say, realized eschatology. The, the end of the world is coming at some future date or time, only, the God, only God knows, and yet we are already realizing it here in part. And I think that is a beautiful, beautiful connection there. Nothing for us to be worried about. In fact, we have enjoying these, uh, these pools and uh, the reeds and the rushes right now by grace through faith. We have been recreated in the waters of holy baptism. And that's why we can look at uh, this, this sin-filled world that we live in that sometimes makes us very anxious and afraid. And we can cling to the person and work of Jesus. We can cling to his promises. We can cling to his gifts, the word preached and taught to us, baptism, the Lord's Supper, because he won't leave us. He won't forsake us. He is with us always. Isaiah 35, 3-7, this great reversal is laid before us very clearly and very beautifully in the person and work of Jesus Christ. When we come back from our break, we're going to take a look at our epistle reading, and this may seem like kind of a strange pairing. You know, we've often talked about how the epistle reading is a practical application of everything that we have studied or learned so far. When we come back, we're going to hear a very, very familiar section of Scripture, sometimes called the love chapter of Scripture, 1 Corinthians 13. Don't change that dial. We'll be right back. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One, Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline. We're looking at the readings for Quinquagesima, the Sunday before Ash Wednesday, the last of our three pre-Lent Gesima Sundays. In our first two segments of this particular program, we looked at our gospel reading, Luke 18, 31 to 43. In our third segment, we looked at the Old Testament reading, Isaiah 35, 3 to 7. And now in our final segment, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 13, 1 to 13, the whole chapter, the chapter of love. Pastor? 
If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know now, we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Okay, there you have it, the great love chapter in Scripture, 1 Corinthians 13, and there are probably a few other chapters, especially in uh, 1 John, that would qualify as love chapters as well. Pastor, this this uh, section of Scripture, or at least a few verses from this section of Scripture, are very well known. They're quoted in Hallmark movies. They are crocheted and hung in uh, kitchens and bedrooms throughout the land. Uh, sermons are preached on them. They, they are uh, imprinted on coffee cups. The whole love is patient, love is kind, that, that laundry list of love there. What, what I want to ask you about is the location of 1 Corinthians 13. And I'm not trying to be a smart aleck here. 1 Corinthians 13 comes after 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 13 comes before 1 Corinthians 11. Or uh, before 1 Corinthians 14. I, I, it's a good thing you're not an accountant and you're a pastor, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you get me. All right. So stationed between chapters 12 and 14, duh, is chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 talks a lot about spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 14 talks a lot about spiritual gifts and especially the spiritual gift of tongues. It can't be a coincidence that this chapter is in between these two spiritual gift chapters that are so often abused and misused. Am I am I barking up the wrong tree, Pastor, or am I on to something here? No, I think that is an important thing for us to consider. We always have to understand the context, and if we take 
a particular scripture passage away from the context, uh, that's always a very dangerous thing. For example, uh, you can quote scripture and say, Judas went and hanged himself, and Jesus went and said, do likewise. Those are two different scripture passages that are not next to each other. We take them out of context, slap them together, and we have uh, a really dangerous set of words that are from the Bible, just not in context and not uh, properly put together. So what can we learn here with God's exhortation through the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 with regard to love and this whole notion of miraculous gifts or spiritual gifts that manifest themselves in the church? Well, I, I think that's what we have to understand is that this love that is being talked about is something that begins uh, in Christ and in what he does for us. It's not uh, a law for us to fulfill, and it's not a law that we need to feel really good about and say, well, look how loving I am. That takes our eyes off of Christ. But rather, we see this as a fruit that grows out of faith in Jesus Christ. Christ has bled and died to forgive us all sins, and now I'm free to love. Christ has bled and died and rose again, and uh, that's how love comes to me, and now I also take that same love to other people. Uh, it is a spiritual gift in that regard. It is not a law to fulfill. If, uh, if we want to be saved, we have to do it. It's something that we have naturally because of what Christ has done for us and our faith in that. So if I look at this uh, laundry list of love that begins, I believe, in about verse 4, love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, love does not boast. Are you trying to tell me that this is not a standard that we are to try to measure up to, that, uh, that this is not like a, a laundry list of things to check mark off. If I want to be happy, then this is how I should live. Well, yeah, I actually, uh, this is uh, one of the passages we read when I do premarital counseling with couples. And I always say, uh, do you guys love each other? And what do you think their answer is when I ask? Yes, of course. Yeah. So then I say, uh, so you are always patient with one another, right? Because that's what Paul writes. Well, no. They're not always patient with each other. Um, they're always you're always kind to each other if you love each other, right? Well, well most of the time, yeah. So, sometimes we're not. Um, you're not arrogant or rude to each other. You know, you ask, start to go through these things, and all of a sudden they realize this isn't what they are doing. Uh, and so we have to understand this first, that this is love, not that uh, we love God uh, or do anything for him or anything like that, but rather that first he loves us and gives his son as a propitiatory sacrifice for our forgiveness of sins. And in that sacrifice, in that mercy shown by Jesus Christ, then we are set free to love one another in the way that he's loved us. And so uh, it's kind of like a fire hose filling up a bucket. The bucket gets filled really fast, and it overflows and splashes those around us. That's the way our faith is. Christ is the fire hose. We're the bucket. He fills us up, and then that love that he gives to us uh, splashes around and is shared with the people around us. And that's kind of the picture that Paul is painting with the words that he writes here in 1 Corinthians 13. Like that's a beautiful picture for us and properly understood that 1 Corinthians 13 is not about our human love and affection with our sweetheart, our wife, our parents, our kids, or you know, anything like that. It's first and foremost about Christ. 
And when we see this chapter as Christ's love for us, then we can see how that love of Christ overflows into our lives. Pastor, uh, down in verse 10, um, and I guess it really starts in verse 9. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. So something is incomplete here. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. What is this that is incomplete? What is this perfect that is coming and the partial will pass away? What, what are we talking about here? Well, uh, we're, I mean, so you had said this earlier, quoting Pastor Morundi, and I, I never like to use these sort of words, but it is inaugurated eschatology again, if you want to. Uh, it is, uh, we understand now, but not completely and totally, because we are still here in this sinful world. And so the perfect thing that's coming is Jesus returning to bring this world to an end, to take us out of this world and into the world that is to come, and the peace and comfort and joy that comes in knowing Christ. We have that now, but we don't fully realize it yet. We don't completely understand it yet. And so the way Paul talks about it, it's like you're looking in a dirty mirror, and so you can kind of see the reflection, but it's not perfect. Uh, you're looking out through a dirty window. You can see outside, but it's kind of hazy and not complete uh, understanding. You couldn't paint it well. You're more of an impressionist painter than a um, you know classical painter in that way. Or uh, this, we could go on with these sorts of examples over and over again. It's a now but not yet sort of thing where we don't have the full picture quite yet. It repeats itself again and again in verses 12 and uh, I guess in verse 12 twice. Uh, now we see in a mirror, then we see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully. And we are we are clearly taught here in this in-between time where Christians live, in between the ascension of Jesus into heaven and his glorious return, in between the time when Christ calls us to faith in the waters of holy baptism and he comes back for us on the last day, whether we're alive or we're already in the grave. And the thing that holds all of this together is love. Not my love for you or your love for your wife or kids, but the selfless, sacrificial, agape love of Jesus that paid his blood for our ransom and for our life. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave himself as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. Pastor, we need to... Uh, bring this uh, to a close. Would you uh, would you pray the collect of the day for Quinquagesima? Let us pray. O Lord, merciful Father, hear our prayers, and having set us free from the bonds of our sins, deliver us from every evil. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. 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 For Pastor... Um, Boy, I got Morundi in my head Adam now. Moline. Yeah, for Pastor Moline, I am Pastor Poppy. Thanks for tuning in today to Proclaiming the One. We gather each Sunday at 8 and 1030 with Sunday School for All Ages in between. Come join us, 3825 Wildbriar Lane in South Lincoln. You can listen to all of our worship services live on KNNALP 95.7. Check us out on the web, thecross957.org. So, Sunday morning, 
Get up, drink your coffee, read your paper, pray for your pastor, but most importantly, go to church. God's richest blessings in Jesus Christ.